Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Page 94, the Private Eye podcast, now officially with more episodes than Ed Miliband has had girlfriends. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and today we will be talking to the Eyes master parodist Craig Brown about being raised by nuns and the perils of taking the piss out of people who turn out to really enjoy it. Later on we'll be talking to Heather Mills, one of Private Eye's investigative team, about murky goings-on in the village of Botton. But before all that, it is, of course, manifesto time. One of the most exciting times after hammer, Greenwich mean, and peanut butter jelly. The Conservatives have announced that they intend to provide strong leadership, a clear economic plan, and a brighter, more secure future. Controversial offers which will doubtless lose them as many followers as they gain. Labour, by contrast, are offering a better plan, a better future, and they've announced that they'll be using no conjunctions in between any phrases that they use until at least 2020. They've also said that they're going to cut the deficit every single year, even if they don't really feel like it some years. The Lib Dem manifesto is twice as long as both the Conservative and the Labour manifestos, although, to be fair, 80 pages of it just consists of Nick Clegg saying, I'm so sorry, it won't happen again. Now... Craig Brown has been writing Private Eye's diary column for an indecently long time. If you're a famous person in Britain today, it's almost certain that at some point you will have received a Craig Brown skewering. It turns out, unfortunately, that you may not have minded that. I caught up with Craig about the art of parody. Before that, here is a clip of him at the National Theatre channeling Richard Dawkins' Twitter feed. Tweet! Ice Bucket Challenge, a loathsome reminder of the sheer unabashed cruelty of religious belief. (laughs) Tweet. Predictable tsunami of stupidity greets my condemnation of Ice Bucket Challenge. Okay, pouring icy water over a human being might not be conventionally religious, but it is irrational enough to be logically considered as such. Tweet. No, I would be happy to subject an unborn fetus to the Ice Bucket Challenge. (laughs) But that is not the point. (laughs) Tweet. Can't you listen? I did not say that every fetus should be subjected to the ice bucket challenge. On the other hand, it would probably teach it a valuable early lesson in religious barbarity. (laughs) Tweet. R.I.P. Dickie Attenborough, a great admirer of mine. (laughs) Tweet. Do I detect the hand of Pope Francis behind the ice bucket challenge? He clearly knows that only by freezing our brains can he force humans into irrational beliefs. Tweet. See me on YouTube explaining position on Ice Bucket Challenge in greater philosophical detail to Jon Snow at Channel 4 News. Tweet. Ice Bucket Challenge worse than mild paedophilia, but better than date rape. If you think that's an endorsement of mild paedophilia, go away and learn to think logically. (laughs) Tweet. I didn't say that mild paedophilia was better than the Ice Bucket Challenge. I said the Ice Bucket Challenge was worse than mild paedophilia. If you think that's the same, you need your brain mending. (laughs) Craig Brown is the most fashionable, most successful young journalist of his generation. No question. Those words were written in 1994. Craig, you may now have to settle for just being very funny. Yes, it is one of the trouble. And you go very quickly from being promising. You can only be promising for a little time. And then, <laughs> then you're in the normal game with everyone else, yes. You've been writing the, the As Told to Craig Brown, the diary column in Private Eye, for 25 years? 25 now? years, yes. Which I think is actually ties in with what you were saying about, what I was saying about promising and 
young, you just sort of you you start off doing something little. You think, oh, well, it'll keep me going for six months, and then that is actually what you are. You know, the wind changes, right. and that's what you are. At what point did you start taking the piss? Um, well, in my life, oh, it's normal schoolboy thing and a normal <laughs> private eye tradition. Where I mean, I think everyone who went to a boarding prep school in the sixties had a sort of uh, a plethora of grotesqueries among the staff uh, to choose from. I, I read that um, you were educated by nuns. In my very first school, yeah, yes, that's funny. I hadn't even thought of that. It's rather glamorous now I think of it. <laughs> yes, and I, yeah, it's a Catholic convent school, and I remember one of the first classes. The nun told us, I think she's called Mother Frances. She said, um, "You must all uh, put your hands together as tightly as possible, and then go even tighter." She said. God is even between your hands now. <laughs> oh, so that's good. Wow, yeah. like a dead moth. Yes, yes. So that, you know, however hard you try to avoid him, you're still there. And I remember also with the nuns. Mm. Which, so this is when I was kind of probably five, six. But we, uh, because they were often called by, uh, or maybe always called by men's name so it'd be you know mother joseph or something like that because they're named after saints and so uh, i remember having one discussion um about whether the nuns were men male or female because you can't really take <laughs> desexualized in a way with that uh, <laughs> did you start at school caricature yeah yeah, yeah yeah so um with a friend of mine we used to to just you know do the staff voices and things like that and so my life hasn't progressed <laughs> since the age of seven you're right. still about seven years yes, old yes Yes, and I think actually everyone says, oh, you know, people who criticise private, I say, oh, it's schoolboy humour, but there isn't any other. But there's no kind of grown-up humour, because then it's not humorous. Right. You know what I mean? Grown-up humour, I always think of as, because uh, I live in Aubrey, and there's the Aubrey Festival, but occasionally if you go to a concert, there'll be a little sort of humorous divertissement by, a, a, you know, the conductor. And it's not funny, but everyone goes, hoo, hoo, hoo. you know, there's a, so there's a special kind of laughter for things which aren't funny. And I call that grown-up humour. The only humour is childish. Yes. Yeah. Sort of necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of any any, any humour which isn't. So we, we've got you up to the edge of about seven. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not long to go. Do you ever find yourself sympathising with your targets, thinking, actually, you seem like such a nice, decent actually, person? Actually, the odd thing, you do at the beginning, you think, oh, how can I you know, attack this nice person? But then once you've done the parody, you start, you believe, as you're writing it, you're believing it's true, because that's the only way it works. So by the end, you think, well, what a completely ghastly person. <laughs> and of course, it's the person you've created. Your Richard Dawkins tweets are... I like those. <laughs> I mean, if you look at his tweets, I don't know how regularly you do, but he does about 15 a day. I mean, he's a manic tweeter. And um, Twitter has been a real godsend because it's sort of, I mean, most of what I do is about people's vanity and solipsism. And they're kind of real dilution of vanity. And <laughs> that they're just people saying, look at me, believe me, you know, enjoy me. Or retweeting um, nice things that yes, people say about yes, them. Yes, yes, it's extraordinary. Yeah. And, re and intelligent. And, you know, I've got <coughs> lots of objections to Richard Dawkins. But he's obviously intelligent. But he's prepared to be moronic. Or he, I don't know. <laughs> he doesn't realise how moronic he is. Um, and vain, it's extraordinary so that's given a whole new injection of life Have you ever been confronted in the immediate aftermath of writing something really cutting? Yes, I'm always, I always sort of forget I mean, Ian sometimes passes because I don't really mix with these people whereas Ian sometimes <laughs> does with Have I Got News For You I remember he said that Alan Sugar 
pulled out of Have I Got News For You after I'd done his diary. So I thought, well, that's good. I mean, I, I like all this. <laughs> you know, you feel like he's read it and he's been offended. And almost more often, you think, oh, God, uh, you know, I went a bit far that time and actually the person quite likes it. So you can't really tell. So I actually don't, um, I don't care anymore. With that, you know. <laughs> Have you ever made friends with someone off the back of writing a real oh, diary column? Uh, yes, actually, I have, oddly enough. Um, Nikki Haslam, the sort of socialite. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I did... In a way, it wasn't a parody. In a way, I mean, he could have got across, because he does this joke about what's common. You know, he says, oh, you know, eating tomatoes is common, or that kind of thing. <laughs> and in a way, it's, he's sending himself up. So I was just... I just took... I, in a way, I stole his joke. There's a saying, nothing is so revealing about someone's character as the joke that they don't laugh at. Yes. And also it's quite a sort of subtle form of getting at someone because you're using their language and you're, you're, you're almost occupying their body, Hannibal Lecter style. <laughs> you know, there's something slightly creepy about it. And so I, I think if someone did it to me well, I'd be... I'd be Has anyone I remember ever... once actually Aubrey Moore, I did years and years ago, before Private Eye actually... Uh, I did a whole parody of The Spectator and The Tatler, and I saw him in the street coming towards me, and he's, he said very kind of good-humouredly, but he said, I wasn't able to write for a day after you did that. Cause he, and I can see that, because, you know, I'd use various sort of tropes that he had in his style, and then he'd think, oh, God, someone spotted that this is the way I start and end. It's terrifying. Guessing, yeah. If someone ever says to you, this is the word that you always use, or yes, you yes. breathe this way before you make yes, a comment, yes. it's nightmare. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Can't, you suddenly yes, you can't notice yes, anything else. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I think maybe with journalists, if I do... I mean, I quite often do columnists, if I can't think of anyone else to do, because <laughs> they're always there, and they're always slightly, you know, um, sillier versions of themselves. And, you know, usually... I mean, actually, that one did offend me. Amanda Platel, who writes this terrible column in the Daily Mail... I was sitting next to her at a, on a table at an awards dinner, and she said, "I'm oh, I just love the she's Australian. I love the uh, parody he did of me. I can quote the whole thing." And I said, "I said, oh, go on." And I thought this was a really cutting. You know, I thought this will stop her writing, and she literally started reciting the whole of the thing. She said, "Oh, I entertained dinner guests and." And I really, at that point, I thought, what is the point? People always wanted to buy the spitting image puppets of themselves. Has anyone ever asked? for a personalised hatchet <laughs> job. Uh, well, actually requested, yes. I yeah. could, uh, no, no. Something like that. Craig Brown there. Now, uh, the village of Botton in North Yorkshire is an extremely unusual village. It is run for the benefit of its residents, people with disabilities. The people who live there have not carers but co-workers who work with them, live with them, and help them to lead fulfilling and fulfilled lives. Over the last few months, readers of the Eye will have spotted a lot of stories about dubious goings-on at Botton, thanks to the charitable trust which runs the village, imposing new rules which have threatened the way of life in Botton. Heather Mills is one of Private Eye's investigative teams and has been covering the goings-on at Botton in some detail. I asked her firstly about the model on which Botton is based. It's called a deliberate community. They were started in this country six years ago by Austrians who were actually fleeing the Nazi regime. And ever since then, disabled people live alongside... They don't call them carers, far from it. They live alongside their co-workers and everybody is treated equally. So you contribute to the best of your ability. So everybody works to the best of their ability, um, everybody shares everything, 
disabled people live in the same houses as, quote, normal people and their families, and they share work, they share entertainment. It's a village where you can wander in and out of everybody else's place. There's a church, a bakery, a workshop. There's even a Steiner school there. And Botten is part of a group of nine, which are all run by an organisation called Camp Hill Village Trust. And that's a charity, isn't it? That's a charity, yes. What has been happening at Bottom recently? So in 2011, Bottom was found to be failing in all the regulatory areas, partly because, you know, it was run as this community and it wasn't being run in a way that it should have been that would guarantee that all the disabled villagers had autonomy over things they may want to do and were safe. So Everybody accepts that there needed to be some changes at Botton. You know, they needed to be able to prove that they were keeping, even though as far as I understand it, they'd had no disasters. They needed to be able to prove that they were providing very good care. There were also concerns about the way the finances were being run. And again, as this kind of community, they may not have been, you know, keeping everything together in the way that they should have been so it needed to change it needed reform nobody has any doubts about that so the Campbell village trust stepped in at that point yes yes they and what they did i think they probably panicked a little bit and they brought in a whole new set of managers from the care or the nhs background who decided that it needed to be run much more on the traditional carer cared for basis and that has caused huge upset um, within a community of course because you it changes everybody's status um, so the Campbell Village Trust they want to replace all the voluntary co-workers with paid carers working shifts they want to split up their households so that those with disabilities no longer share the sort of family houses and this has prompted a lot of opposition isn't it from huge opposition community. from within the community and from many of the families whose daughters, sons, brothers, sisters, you know, are living in the village and have been wonderfully happy there for many years, some of them. So were these very drastic changes from the Campbell Village Trust all based on the previous failings that have been identified? Yeah, and the point that probably needs making is that in the intervening years, they have become fully compliant. They now have a good report from the CQC. The the Charity Commission is happy with the finances. So the big question is, why throw the baby out with the bathwater? Why split up this whole idea of shared living and shared working? Um, What everyone says is they don't need to go that far. And the residents of the village themselves, is there consensus among them about these changes? Most, I would say, want to to keep their co-workers and most of the families want to keep their co-workers. And there is a lot of upset from from disabled villagers who fear the breakup of, you know, what has become their, quotes, families, really. You know, they live in houses with children and, you know, they cook and eat and sleep with these people. They don't regard them as their carers. They regard them as their family. And they are really concerned that they're going to lose you know, that family. Mm. And the matter has now come to court. Yeah, it's heading to the court. It's heading to the court on all sorts of levels. There is one action for judicial review brought on behalf of some of the disabled villagers. And they're claiming 
that their human rights are being breached because they're being denied by the changes their rights to a family life. There's a separate action being brought on behalf of a lot of the co-workers who are refusing to sign up for played work. They are alleging that the trust is breaching the original principles under which it was set up, which is everybody's equal, you don't get paid to do this work. How does it work for the co-workers in terms of being paid or unpaid? Yeah, they they live there and work there in return for food, lodgings. If they have children, their children can attend the school. They get expenses, you know, to an extent. There's a pooled car, that kind of thing. But there's no salary involved. But they don't regard it as work at all. So, right. you know, you could argue that having to be available all through the night for people who might need you in the night you know, is is being on duty and being at work. They're providing 24-hour, round-the-clock care, but they don't see it that way. It sounds as though the alternative would be, apart from anything else, much more expensive. Well, I mean, if you have to replace one co-worker with three people working a shift, one would have thought it would be a lot more expensive. There's a real debate going on between both sides of the action, if you like. The Campbell Village Trust, who say these co-workers, if you take if you add up all their expenses and how much it costs to keep them into old age costs far more than properly employing people and they've banded around figures of co-workers costing you know 60,000 a year this is completely disputed by accountants who have gone through CBT's accounts where they say the average cost of a co-worker is about 15,000 a year and no doubt this is all stuff that the courts will be will be asked to look into what makes the whole row about Botton interesting yeah. is that it's really hard to find good quality care at a reasonable price yeah. for learning disabled and physically disabled people. So on one level, if it's not broke, why fix it? The sort of classic way of thinking about care is that disabled people need to be part of the community to get them out of institutions and care homes and hospitals like the disaster that was Winterbourne and move them into the community. But the reality for lots of disabled people is that that, that could just mean they're stuck at home with their family in loneliness or they're living out of the community in loneliness. So there's, there's not a lot of choice for families who are really worried about their children or their brothers and their sisters, particularly as they get older, that they're going to get good care. And local authority budgets to pay for care are being shrunk. So there's less money available to buy good care. Some of the good homes that were being run by organisations like Scope, Guinness, some of the others, they're closing their homes and they say it's all to get people into the community, but the reality is there aren't good community places available. You might just be consigning them to isolation in the community, if you like. What made Botton slightly different is that they could wander out of one house and into another. In some of these shared accommodation, they will need a carer to come and escort them out and take them shopping and do all of these kind of things. You know, most most families with a disabled child or adult as they now are are, are living in poverty and they, they they are reliant on the local authorities to fund a lot of their care and they don't have you know local authorities are cutting their budgets yeah um to pay for care and we've now got into this really 
I find, sort of completely dehumanising system whereby some local authorities are now putting up care plans for disabled people um, onto uh, an online bidding process. So they're not identifying the people, but they're setting out all their care needs and they're going out to various care homes and providers saying, uh, you know, how much will you charge me to look after this person? And so the lowest bidder, I presume, is the one who gets the contract? Well, the local authorities will argue that it isn't the lowest bidder. It has to meet care priorities. But you have to ask um, if it's a bidding process, you have to be looking at the fees, don't you? Presumably, whoever meets the care priorities and bids lowest yes, will, be, will, will be get the on. contract. Yeah. If they meet all the care priorities, of course, then I presume the local authorities would say, well, that's OK. You know, then we've done our duty there. Yes, but it, it, it's, it, you can tick a box and meet a, care, and meet a care need. Whether it's good care needs to be seen to be done and good care can't come cheap. I mean, a lot of these disasters that are happening is because care costs are cut to a minimum. Care workers are paid minimum wage, you know. Sometimes below it, I believe. Sometimes below minimum wage, particularly those when they're trying to care for somebody out in the wider community and visiting their homes. We have lots of these care organisations that aren't paying travel time, for example, to the carers so that they could be spending half their day travelling and not being paid for it. Effectively, you get paid for half a day's work. Half a day's work for actually working a whole day if you take your travel time. And that's below the minimum wage and it's unlawful. And the I was writing about that about three years ago and it's still going on. Heather Mills there. And since that interview was recorded, the disabled villagers have lost their application for judicial review over their rights to family life. But they do intend to appeal. The case continues. That's all for this episode of Page 94. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please do tell your friends or, for that matter, write a review on iTunes. If you want to write to us, correct us or sue us, you can get in touch via podcast at private-i.co.uk. We'll be back next time with an interview with Private Eye's medical correspondent, Phil Hammond. Thanks very much again and goodbye.